You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Wealth Creators, The Forgotten Victims of Cronyism by Steve Simpson. All right, let me jump right in. Um, so in, uh, in January of this year, I was in Austin, Texas, um, and I was, uh, as I uh, you know, approached, I had to go to Austin to do a number of talks. I was there for uh, talks all over the city on UT's campus and uh, at other parts of the city. And uh, as I approached, I was in the airplane, and we're coming in for a landing. And uh, as we approached the, the, the airport, I think I did something that pretty much everybody in the known world does these days, which is the moment, the nanosecond, that the wheels touch the tarmac. I pulled out my phone, right? Everybody does that. Because you might have missed an email in the last hour and a half, or maybe somebody said something on Twitter about you that's really important to know about. But I actually had a real purpose in doing this. I had a, I had a, uh, a sensible purpose to pull my phone out, which was I needed to figure out how I was going to get from the airport to the hotel. And I also did something that I think a lot of people these days do, which is I went to the uh, Uber app on my phone, right? So I used this, this magical device to access another magical service to get me a ride from the, from the airport to the hotel. Uh, and I pushed the little app button, and as it did its little circular, you know, pulsing thing, and I'm here standing there looking at it, expecting to see a little cartoon version of an airport with a lot of cars clustered around it, you know, so I could kind of predict what time they'd be there and when I should call my Uber. I got a very different message that I've never gotten before. And uh, this time the message was, sorry, Uber is not operating in Austin, or words to that effect. Uber's gone from, from Austin. And I was shocked by this because I traveled to Austin a number of times. For all I know, the first time I ever used Uber was in Austin. Uh, and of course, the first thing I thought of was, what the hell's wrong with this thing, you know? Um, and then the second thing I thought was, how am I going to get to the hotel? I don't really, like, and then I remembered there's these old-fashioned things called cabs that we can take from the airport to the hotel. So I said, okay, fine. You know, it's probably going to be a Prius. That'll suck. But I don't really like, no, but it'll, it'll do. So I get in the cab. And uh, on the way to the hotel, I again pull out the magical device and, and uh, try to figure out what's going on. I want to know. I had an idea of what was happening. But uh, I wanted to confirm my suspicions. So I did a quick Google search. And of course, I found out that Uber had been having problems with uh, the local government. Um, uh, and in effect, Uber had been chased out of Austin. Now, I can go into the details of exactly what happened if people are interested in the Q&A, but I don't think this will surprise most people in the audience. If you know anything about Uber, and you know anything about what its basic business model is or what it represents and what it's done, it's made money by challenging a regula regulated monopoly. It's made money by challenging what affects to a government-enforced cartel. And that government-enforced cartel, through a number of uh, you know, sort of machinations had effectively chased Uber and Lyft out of Austin. Now, there's another word we could use for this, which happens to be in the title of my talk, which is cronyism. And I think this is a really good example of one of the costs or the effects of cronyism. You have, and, and if I, I'll, I'll briefly uh, define cronyism for present purposes in my talk, but I'll, I'll get into it uh, as we go through the talk, and I'll, I'll refine what I mean by cronyism. But you could you can think of cronyism as trying to succeed not through production and trade, 
but through influencing government and kind of winning favors from government. And, and this is something that Uber has dealt with in, in competing with the taxi uh, cab companies in most local jurisdictions, which are effectively, uh, they have their right to, to do business enshrined in law. And, uh, and in fact, it was, uh, um, it was through various uh, um, uh, operations of the local government um, uh, uh, led by the, the taxi cartel in Austin, as Uber has faced uh, in many, many cities. Um, they, they imposed all sorts of regulations on Uber and chased Uber effectively out of town. Um, and so I start with this example because I think it's a good example of cronyism in action um, and, and more importantly, the impact that cronyism has on wealth creators. I view Uber as a really innovative company. I view it as, I mean, it's practically, I'm practically dependent on it now. It's so convenient. As I said, I was giving talks all throughout Austin. I had to be traveling all over the place. I was going to be on UT's campus. Um, hailing a cab is a pain today, right? It's so much easier to have this app you know, on your phone that you carry everywhere and you can get a cab or a car at any time. Oh, awesome. Um, sorry, how's that? Is that okay? Um, so as I was saying, it's, it's I've come to depend on Uber and, uh, and I was really disappointed that it wasn't going to be operating anymore. And I think it's a really good example of the impact of cronyism on wealth creators. And as I've put in the title of my talk, I think wealth creators are the forgotten victims of cronyism. One of the real evils of cronyism, which is the mixture, it's a, it's, a, it's a result of the mixing of freedom and controls or freedom and statism in our economy and in our, uh, in our country, is that it prompts us to ignore the vital role of wealth creation and indeed oftentimes to damn the very people that we, are, we depend on to create the modern, of stand, modern standard of living that we enjoy. And that's what I want to get into. And I want to do it uh, really in two parts. First, I want to focus on uh, um, uh, a handful, well, one or two, primarily one, uh, wealth creator. Uh, I want to look at what the nature of wealth creation is, and I want to examine what Ayn Rand had to say about wealth creation. She wrote about it, obviously, extensively in Atlas Shrugged, but she also wrote essays about the topic, and I want to use a kind of way that she thought of wealth creators um, to, 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 uh, to, to bracket the, the, the issue of what is wealth creation and how does cronyism really attack and kind of ruin it. And I want to look specifically at uh, one, at least one example, possibly two examples of wealth creators to, to really concretize and make real to you the role of the wealth creator in society, and in particular in doing battle against the very government that's supposed to be pr uh, protecting them, in much the same way that Uber is doing uh, today. And then what I want to do is I want to circle back and I want to talk a bit about cronyism, what really is at the root of cronyism, this thing, I would put it as this thing we call cronyism. Um, I want to talk about how the conventional view of cronyism is mistaken and how we need a better view. And really, that view comes from Ayn Rand. She's the only person that I know of who really understood this phenomenon 
uh, and really understood the role of wealth creators and exactly what what we call today cronyism does to wealth creators. And incidentally, I don't think cronyism is the best term for it. Ayn Rand used the term pull peddling to indicate people who survive on, you know, influence peddling or, or, or pull, political pull. Um, you could use, uh, other people use terms like rent seeking. My favorite term, and I'll explain why this is, is one that comes to us from Frederick Bastiat, who was the great 19th century French economist, and he used the term legal plunder, which I think is about the best definition term for cronyism um, that exists out there. But uh, without further ado, let me, uh, let me dive in then to the subject. So again, I want to start with uh, kind of a profile um, and a discussion of um, wealth creators, what I would put it as wealth creators versus wealth appropriators, or the term that Ayn Rand used in an essay called the money-making personality was the money-maker versus the money-appropriator. But let me set up the, uh, the point then first by, I want to talk just really briefly, and I'll return to this toward the end of the presentation. I want to talk about um, the, uh, the conventional view of cronyism, because it's important to, to take a look at this uh, and just see what passes for a sort of mainstream view to get what is missing from this. This comes to us from a writer uh, by the name of Ver Ver Veronique Duruti um, of the Mercatus Center. And she's, you know, generally speaking, I would call her a free market person, maybe a libertarian. But in any event, she's a bright person who writes very uh, eloquently often about free market issues. And yet, even she has a view of cronyism that I think is fatally flawed. But I just want to point that out, and then we'll move on to the discussion of wealth creators. And I'll circle back to this, but let me just read you the quote. This is how cronyism works. A company wants a special privilege from government in exchange for political support in future elections. If the company is wealthy enough or is backed by powerful enough interest groups, the company will get its way and politicians will get another private sector ally. The few cronies win at the expense of everyone else. Now, there's a whole lot of truth to this. I mean, we know that this actually happens, right? Power, you know, companies try to influence government and, quote, win special favors. But we ought to ask a few questions about that. First, what, is, what do we mean by special privileges or special favors? And is that the right way to describe what is happening here? I maintain that the answer is no, and I'll explain exactly why that is a little bit later. Another is notice the, the implication of this. And I, as I said, I chose this quote because I think it's very conventional. It describes what most people think. It's the cronies, the few cronies versus everybody else. And who are the few cronies? If we use the example of Uber that I used before, it would be Uber plus the regulated taxi uh, companies plus the local government all conspiring to basically screw everybody else. And in fact, that is to some extent, I mean, without the, the second part of that, that's actually what happened. Uber was run out of Austin after negotiations with the local government. And there was a three-way negotiation. I mean, in, in, in fact, it was a negotiation. But what they were negotiating over was how the law would apply to Uber, which ought to strike us as at least a little strange because they're negotiating about the law. Imagine criminals negotiating. I don't really want extortion to apply with me to, to me. You know, I'll give a donation to the Policeman's Benevolent Society, and, and maybe we can not apply those laws to me. That's crazy. And yet, that's what was going on. Now, I'm happy to say that Uber will be operating in Austin again. I just read this the other day. Um, that, but, but guess how they ultimately ended up getting their way back into Austin? They went to the state legislature, which I don't fault them for. It was the only thing open to them. But they went to the state legislature. And if you read the articles, it's they spent 
millions of dollars hiring an army of lobbyists to lobby the state legislature, which passed a law now that preempts the local law. I have no problem with this whatsoever. But if you read the articles, the implication is Uber is part of the whole crony game too. And whatever they're doing, it's kind of seedy, and I can't really figure it out, but I don't like any of it. And you get to this cronies versus us, you know, big guys versus the little guys. And we're all getting screwed, and somehow they're doing something that's bad. And we need to think more clearly about that. Um, and that's what I, wanna, um, that's what I want to uh, uh, get into as we go. Um, all right, so let me then dive into uh, uh, the, the nature of the wealth creator, because it's the wealth creator that is being forgotten in this calculus. And if, you know, think about it like this, if you're grouping Uber with the regulated taxi monopolies as both cronies and making no distinction between them, you're making some sort of an error. Something bad is happening here. And, and that's what I want to dig uh, out. And I want to really do it by focusing on the, the wealth creators first. So uh, I want to introduce the subject by talking about Ayn Rand's view of the wealth creator. Um, and by the way, I should, I should make the point, uh, I mean, this is a point, a theme of the entire conference, but just to make it explicit, I obviously assume that wealth is a good thing, right? And I think most people know what that is, so I won't go into details about it. But also, and something that we have to remind ourselves of, is that, you know, wealth doesn't grow on trees. Somebody has to produce it. Somebody has to produce the wealth that we all enjoy. And it's the, it's the money maker, it's the wealth producer that actually does that. And what they do is unique, and it's really special, and it's something that we have to value. And Ayn Rand, of course, wrote about it extensively. Um, so that's what I want to, uh, uh, that's what I want to start by focusing on. Um, than what uh, Ayn Rand had to say about wealth creation. Let me read you one quote um, that really should, should sort of permeate the entire talk and any time you talk about or think about wealth creators, uh, here's how she put it. Wealth is the product of man's collect of his creative ability fully as much as art, science, philosophy, or any other human value. So let's take a look at what type of person she thought was the wealth creator or the money maker. I'm, I'll use those terms interchangeably. So the money maker is the discoverer, as she puts it, who translates his, discover, his discovery into material goods. It may be one man or a partnership of two, the scientist who discovers new knowledge and the entrepreneur who essentially discovers how to use the knowledge, how to organize material resources and human labor into an enterprise producing marketable goods. So what are the qualities of the moneymaker? The essential characteristic, as Rand puts it, I'm paraphrasing her here, is, oh no, that is, uh, sorry, that's an actual quote, is independent judgment. So the moneymaker is a man of profound self-esteem, and supreme confidence in his own judgment. His basic orientation is not to other people, but to reality. You might think of him as following Francis Bacon, Bacon's famous dictum, nature to be commanded must be obeyed, right? He, he recognizes that reality is what it is, but he ultimately seeks to change it to suit human needs. He seeks to change uh, nature and create the things that we need to live and thrive. He's an active thinker, a problem solver, a trendsetter, and not a trend follower. Now, one that I should make in, in, uh, in uh, 
pointing all this out, is that it's certainly not true that everybody who is a wealth creator or a money maker is the you know, distilled essence of all these things. That's, this is an idealized version, although the, the person I'm going to talk about, I think, is as close to uh, a real life, sort of larger than life, uh, you know, person that practically leaps out of uh, Atlas Shrugged. And there are people like this, but, but the ultimate point is, to the extent that people are creating wealth, these are the virtues that they're embodying. Um, and that is the essential thing that we need to understand. It's not that every single wealth creator or every single businessman or money maker is, uh, is you know, the perfect embody embodiment of this. It's that this is the essence of what it means. It's thinking independently. It's using your mind to create new things. And I mean, if you just look at the modern world, uh, the evidence of that is all around us. So the person that I want to talk about is Cornelius Vanderbilt. Uh, hopefully everybody has heard about Cornelius Vanderbilt. And there's a couple of reasons that I focus on him. Um, he was a steamboat magnate and then later a railroad magnate in the 19th century. You can see his uh, lived or born in 1794 and lived through 1877. Um, and, uh, and he was also somebody who, in, in a way, made a living by defeating both government-enforced monopolies and private cartels. And he, and he reveled in it. And he was awesome at it. I mean, he just destroyed government cartels and, and monopolies throughout his entire life. I think he is a really good version of or, or a way to think about a, uh, a wealth creator and somebody who has been damned as a robber baron and even a crony. And there are reasons for that which I'll, which I'll go into. Um, but here's a quote from Ayn Rand's, again, from the money-making personality that I think perfectly distills the kind of person Vanderbilt was. Neither space nor time nor age can limit the moneymaker's extravagant energy and drive. If anybody in history had extravagant energy and drive, it was Cornelius Vanderbilt. So let me tell you a few things about him, and I'll, I'll try to focus, and I, I need to keep this brief um, for time uh, reasons, but I'm going to just kind of focus in on the essential uh, points about Vanderbilt, specifically the ways in which he challenged government-enforced monopolies. But Vanderbilt basically came from nothing. He was born in, uh, on Staten Island back when Staten Island was just all farm country. He was born to a family of 14 children. He, uh, his parents were farmers. And uh, he had no formal education to speak of. Uh, I'm not sure he went to school at all, but I assume he went to primary school. But if you listen to Andy Bernstein's talk the other day, it's not uncommon for these guys not to, not to, not to go to school, to drop out of school, and to, to pursue their, their business interests. And Vanderbilt was no different. He hated school. Uh, couldn't, I mean, he couldn't spell. He could barely speak grammatically. He swore like a sailor, which probably made sense, because later he was a sailor. Um, and yet, by the end of his life, he had amassed the largest fortune that any American up to that time had amassed, over $105 million, which in today's dollars was about $2.5 billion. Now, um, to, to really sort of cut to the chase, he was restless. By the age of 16, he wanted to get out of the house. He wanted to start doing other things. He convinced his mom to loan him $1,000 to buy a sailboat later on. After uh, he established himself, he paid back not only the $100, but an, addition, an additional $1,000, so it was a pretty good investment. He quickly became one of the leading captains ferrying people in the New York waters, uh, first from Staten Island over to Manhattan, and then later all around Manhattan, all on up, up and down 
the Hudson River. He very quickly, um, even though he started off with sailboats, even though he designed some of his own sailboats, when steamboats came along, he quickly realized, okay, this is the wave of the future. And again, you know, neither space nor time nor age can limit the, limit the extravagant energy and drive. He switched from sailboats to steamboats, recognizing he didn't have the knowledge and expertise that he needed to, to operate his own steamboats. He decided to go to work for another steamboat operator, a guy by the name of Thomas Gibbons, which if any of you know your legal history, that name might be significant, and I'll explain why it is in a bit. So he goes to work for Thomas Gibbons. Gibbons has a problem. Gibbons wants to operate a steamboat across the Hudson River between New Jersey and New York. His problem is the New York legislature has granted a monopoly to Robert Fulton, who is the guy who perfected steamboats and is known as, you know, practically the inventor of steamboats, and Robert Livingston, who was also a well-known politician at the time. He's a, he, was a, he signed the Declaration of Independence. But for our purposes, I mean, these guys can be good guys in other contexts, but in this case, they're bad guys. So um, they were granted a monopoly by New York to operate steamboats across the, the Hudson River. And uh, even to the extent of defining New York waters, from the New York side all the way to the high tide line on New Jersey, right? So they basically just define the entire Hudson River as this is New York's. I guess this is the first example of New York essentially giving the big you know, middle finger to New Jersey. And I don't think New Jersey's ever gotten any respect since that time. But in any event, the one good thing they did was side with Vanderbilt in this, uh, in this fight. You know, so you have um, New, Jer New York essentially saying anybody who operates steamboats in defiance of the monopoly can have them confiscated. New Jersey is saying that anybody who, uh, who um, pursues or seeks to uh, enforce this law against um, uh, uh, people carrying um, passengers from New Jersey will be arrested. We have a classic kind of trade war going on between New York and New Jersey. Vanderbilt being the cheeky kind of guy who likes controversy and uh, uh, he convinced convinces Gibbons to go against the monopoly, flies a flag that says New Jersey must be free, and they just take off in defiance of the law, um, and they, they continue to ferry people back and forth across the river. He's got lots of customers because everybody hates the monopoly. They're all very angry at the fact that there's this monopoly there. They don't want to pay the monopoly prices, so he not only has got a lot of customers coming on board, but they're very entertained by the spectacle of uh, Vanderbilt defying the New York authorities. To the extent that crowds would gather on the docks just to wait for, for Vanderbilt to come across the river, uh, he had to, to switch the piers that he would land on every day because New York authorities would often be uh, waiting for him. Sorry. Oh. How's that? Can you hear me now? Um, so anyway, he had to defy the New York authorities when uh, choose different piers to land on uh, on a daily basis. When he landed, he'd have to leap off the boat and escape into the crowd. Um, before that, once the ferry boats were filled, filled up and the authorities were milling through the crowd looking for him, Vanderbilt would be nowhere to be seen. And he'd, he'd instruct his crew to start the engines and start pulling away from the pier, where maybe I'm embellishing a little bit, whereupon I, I imagine the crowd just parted and Vanderbilt sort of took off down the dock, jumped onto the ship, and basically, you know, lifted his hat to, to and, and it's, it's not really, I mean, that's embellished a little bit, but, but it was something like that. I, I mean, the, uh, the New York authorities would board his vessel trying to arrest him. 
they burst into the pilot's cockpit only to find the boat being piloted by like a little kid or a woman in petticoats while Vanderbilt hid in a secret compartment that he convinced Gibbons to build in the ships, knowing that this was gonna happen. So this goes on for a while. In the meantime, Gibbons sues and tries to have this law overturned. The reason I said that uh, his name is, uh, is uh, ought to be familiar to anybody who knows legal history is this case makes it all the way up to the Supreme Court. The case is called Gibbons versus Ogden. It's a, it's, it was a, a groundbreaking case that established the principle that only the federal government could regulate interstate commerce, not the state. So they strike down the New York monopoly. At this point, Vanderbilt then goes off on his own and he decides to essentially make a living fighting against any other steamboat uh, operator uh, in the area and destroying cartels and monopolies everywhere he goes. And he gains this reputation as a person who can uh, essentially outcompete pretty much anybody. Um, and, and keep in mind, this is, what, 50 or 60 years before uh, the Sherman Antitrust Act is passed. Now, I'm against the antitrust laws. I think they're a horrible abomination. But uh, remember that the whole justification for those laws is that if we leave the market free, then people will create cartels and they'll, you know, jack up prices. Vanderbilt is the living answer to that. Because whenever he found a cartel, a, a private association of steamboat operators, he would go and directly compete with them until they were destroyed, until they knew they just couldn't continue to, to charge high prices and, and compete with a guy like this. And this is how he made his living um, through his uh, years as a steamboat operator. I could tell you more stories, but I don't want to um, belabor the point. Um, let me just give you a quote. This is Brandi uh, Vanderbilt said this. Um, at a point when he was uh, opposing a subsidy for mail, mail carrying across the Atlantic by Congress. And the quote is, for those of you who can't read it, the share of prosperity which has fallen to my lot is the direct result of unfettered trade and unrestrained competition. It is my wish that those who are to come after me shall have the same field open before him. So he believed in open competition and he was a ruthless competitor. Um, now, at the age of 62, he again sees the future of transportation. He recognizes that it's railroads. He sells all of his steamboat holdings and transfers them into railroads and, and then goes on to do in the railroad industry essentially exactly what he did in the steamboat industry. Um, I'm running out of time, so I don't really have time to tell too many more stories about Vanderbilt, but just know that, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll very quickly tell you a story about, it's not really a story, but just very quickly cut to the bottom line. He, in, in dealing with railroad traffic in and around New York, which he improved everywhere he, he operated uh, railroads, he constantly came up against government interference. And in one time in particular, um, he ran up against uh, essentially what amounted to franchise laws, which you can think of as that time period's taxi medallion or taxi regulations, right? So that you had to get government permission to run through certain parts of New York. And the only way he could do this was to appeal to legislatures. And it was actually not uncommon at the time for legislatures and city councils to essentially hold their hand out and say, what are you gonna do for me? So there are stories, and, and these stories are true. Vanderbilt actually bribed some public officials. But when you think about it from the standpoint that it was the only way he could do business, um, I think it was entirely justifiable in the time period. And not only that, 
he, uh, they, they oftentimes, and this actually happened with the New York uh, legislature, where not only did they, like, so you could think about it like this, Brandi, or sorry, Vanderbilt was an honorable man who when he paid a bribe to somebody, he expected them to stay bribed, right? But oftentimes what happened is people would try to double cross him. The New York legislature did it at one time. They tried to sell his stock short, which is a way of profiting from the, the declining value of a stock and tried to ruin him by buying up shares of his stock, telling him he was gonna get the franchise and then double crossing him and pulling the franchise and announcing that there would be no franchise in which case the stock plummet uh, would have plummeted. He survived those kinds of bouts by enlisting friends of his to buy up his own stock, drive the, the price of the stock up, and basically he at one point ruined the entire New York legislature. As he put it, we broke the legislature. And he was just absolutely delighted by that. So this is the character of the man um, that is today, or one of the men who is today known as a robber baron, known as a crony, which I maintain is, is uh, horribly unjust. Um, okay, let me move on then to very quickly another wealth creator uh, from today's times. Bill Gates is, everybody knows who Bill Gates is obviously. And let me just remind you of the quote that, uh, that Ayn Rand, that I read by Ayn Rand earlier, that wealth is the product of man's intellect and is cr just as creative as uh, uh, art, science, philosophy, or any other human value. I think Bill Gates embodies this perfectly. And I won't belabor um, uh, or have, say a whole lot about um, the type of person Gates was, but he was an obvious innovator. I mean, he practically was, you know, he was there at the very beginning of the computer revolution. He, he was one of the great architects of the PC revolution. And he was just a, he was a forward thinker, an active thinker, a real productive genius. And of course, much like Brandeis and Uber and many of the other wealth producers, he faced the same kind of attacks from government, this time in the, f in the form of an antitrust action for doing nothing more than giving away for free a piece of software along with Windows called Internet Explorer, which had become, I think even by the time the case was filed, pretty much obsolete because there were all sorts of other competitors in the area. But I think the antitrust action against Gates um, uh, and against Microsoft, I'm sorry, really hobbled Microsoft and has changed people's view of Microsoft. It was much more of an innovative company and it's taken years for it to build back its reputation. And I think part of the animosity toward Microsoft is driven by the fact that its hands were tied after the antitrust action. And, uh, and there's a real injustice in the fact that people oftentimes look at Microsoft as this lumbering large company and this often happens. Um, so there's a real injustice there. Uh, so with that, then let me um, let me turn to a discussion about where this injustice comes from and uh, how it is that we're thinking about um, cronyism and what's wrong with that. Actually, I just realized that I want to talk about very briefly. Um, the other side of the, the equation, the other side of the coin. So Ayn Rand talked about the money maker, um, but she also talked about what was known as the money appropriator. And that is, if there's anybody to blame for cronyism, it's, the, it's what she referred to as the money appropriator. And again, if you've read Atlas Shrugged, um, she gave all kinds of examples of these types. And I'll talk about one in a, in a minute from real life. But as she puts it, the essential characteristic of the money appropriator is dependence 
And here's a quote from her. He's essentially non-creative and his basic goal is to acquire an unearned share of the wealth created by others. He seeks to get rich not by conquering nature, but by manipulating men, not by intellectual effort, but by social maneuvering. He doesn't produce, he redistributes. He merely switches wealth already in existence from the pockets of its owners to his own. And again, just as with the money maker, not every money appropriator is a sort of purely evil person. I mean, there are definitely those out there, but there, in, in today's world, due to the fact that we have mixed, you know, we have a mixed economy that is a mixture of freedom and controls, it's often very difficult to tell who is who. But again, the essential that is going on when somebody is actively using government to get rich rather than producing and trading is what Rand is talking about here. And the person, I've written about this before, the person that I think embodies this, uh, this, uh, this type best today uh, is Donald Trump. And there's a reason that I think that. And, and we, you can, you can, I know that there are a lot of Trump supporters. Uh, every time I write about Trump, I get lots of uh, hate or you know, angry uh, comments on my Facebook feed. And that's fine. I mean, the, the ultimate point, I think Trump is a nutball and you know, I can't imagine how he ever was, how he ever produced even one penny of wealth. But you know, I could be wrong about that. My ultimate point here is the reason I focus on Trump is that he embodies both sides of the equation. Ayn Rand talked about the, uh, the, the partnership between the businessman and the politician as the essence of or part of uh, what's going on with cronyism or pull peddling. Uh, and I think Trump actually embodies both sides of that equation. So just very quickly, I'll remind you uh, something that you may have all heard, is that when he, he was a businessman in the 1990s, he was a big proponent of using the power of eminent domain in Atlantic City, and he in fact did that to uh, a woman by the name of Vera Koking, had the Atlantic City, uh, the city authorities effectively used the power of eminent domain to take her property for a casino parking lot, and then later, Defended. He defended it all the way up to the campaign in which he said, if we didn't have this power to take people's property away, we wouldn't be able to do business. And it was, quote, in the public interest to do so. That was the, the basic point he made. Um, and I want to I'm going to I want to come back to that uh, uh, in a moment when I'm talking about the evil of cronyism and what it really represents. Um, but uh, so that's him as a businessman, as a politician, of course. He constantly uses his power either affirmatively to try to, uh, or it's typically as threats. So think about you know, his jawboning or threatening of Ford Motor Company not to move a manufacturing plant to Mexico, or what he did with Carrier, or I mean, he does this constantly. He sees a man who does not seem to recognize any principled distinction uh, or any principled limit to government power. He is, I think, as a politician, he embodies a real kind of thug mentality. It's, you know, do what I tell you or else. And that is the essence of cronyism. That's the essence of the crony politician or the pull peddling politician, or really it's the, it's the politician that is willing to use um, government as a way of plundering others and not protecting others. And that's, that's uh, exactly what we have to uh, understand and what we have to fight against um, when we're dealing with this issue. Um, okay, but let me turn then, and I'll, I'll come back to Trump in a minute, but uh, I want to turn back to the quote that I put up before, because I want you to get to examine it for a moment now. And so what I'm talking about now is what is it that we're really talking about when we talk about cronyism? What is the real evil here? And how does the conventional view go wrong? 
So I'll, I won't reread the whole quote, but notice again a couple things that I pointed to before. The idea conveyed, and this is, I think, pervasive, is that government is giving, quote, special privileges to certain people and that in some way all businesses are tainted with this. They're all in league with the government. They are all kind of working with the government. Um, and they're at, at best neutral. At worst, they're all just cronies in the waiting. You know, they're all just waiting to take advantage of government to sort of screw their competitors or screw everybody else. I think it's a very common view out there. And part of the reason for that, I mean, there are a lot of reasons for it, but part of the reason is a misunderstanding of what's really going on here, which gets to a misunderstanding of what government is all about and what the proper role of government is. So let me talk a bit about that. Um, All right, so one of the things I want to uh, point out is what is the problem with the conventional view? Now, I just talked about this vague idea of government giving special privileges to people. I talked about Donald Trump's vision or view of what government's purpose is that, uh, that as long as something is in the interest of the public or, or society, that it's justifiable. And I want to read you, this quote comes from the LA Times. It's a response to, a kind of response to what, the, the, what I just uh, put up on the, on the screen a moment ago, um, which was the conventional view of, of cronyism. If you followed these debates, you have free market thinkers, let's group them as that. Free market thinkers saying cronyism is a bad thing. And you know, it involves government picking winners and losers and granting special privileges to people, but they don't really get to the fundamental issue. This is the response from those who, I mean, you could say it's those on the left, but I don't really think this is a strict issue of left versus right. But the response you'll notice um, from the LA Times, and this was during the, the debates over the Export-Import Bank. I can tell, tell you more about what that is, but it, it's not really important to the point. And here's the point that, that LA Times makes. Government regularly intervenes in the markets all the time in the name of public safety, economic growth, consumer protection, and they draw squawks of protest from whatever interest group is harmed. I'm sort of summarizing and sort of reading here. Um, but a policy that's outrageous to one faction, for example, government subsidies for wind, solar, et cetera, uh, um, may in fact be a welcome effort to, to achieve an important societal objective. Okay, so if you accept the view that, as Donald Trump put it, in essence, or implicitly put it, the purpose of government is to ch achieve the public interest, which I, I can tell you it's astounding how many free market thinkers adopt that basic idea. And Rand was the only person that I'm aware of, the only thinker who challenged that idea and really pushed back against it. We need a better view. We need a principled view. We need some foundation for government. It can't just be that, you know, we, uh, we have this um, this uh, institution that has a monopoly on the use of force, and then we're just going to say that it should do whatever is in the public interest. Um, and they're also capitalizing on this idea of privileges as what's going wrong when cronyism happens. And the way they put it is, look, government does all kinds of things, right? And if we accept that government should intervene in the market or do all kinds of things that you know we might define as in the social welfare, Who's to say which are the right ones and which are the wrong ones? And really what this whole debate comes down to is one interest group getting mad at another interest group, getting mad at another interest group, and it's really just a matter of which interest groups you side with. 
Maybe you side with loggers, in which case you think environmentalists are horrible and they're you know, influencing government to their benefit. Maybe it's the opposite, but who's to say, you know, toss it all to the electorate, let them vote on it, and we'll all just fight it out in, uh, in the legislature or during elections, which is exactly part of what, peop- what leads people to think of cronyism and influencing government is such a great evil, right? If you think that um, the purpose of government is to do the will of society or the public good, ask yourself this, why was Donald Trump wrong to use the power of eminent domain to take Vera Koking's house? If we really accept his view and the mainstream view that the purpose of the government is to serve the will of society or the public good, What's wrong with taking Vera Koking's house and using it to build a casino par- parking lot? I'm willing to bet that if you put it up to a vote, most people in Atlantic City would say, essentially, screw her, I want a casino parking lot, I want jobs, I want taxes, and they would outnumber her by 100 to 1 at least, right? So if you actually put this up to a vote, she loses clearly, right? And if you, and if you further and continue that process, you get the kind of politics that we have today. Right? Think about what happens every election cycle where politicians essentially say, vote for me and I will you know, throw government largesse and subsidies and favors your way. It's interest group politics. It's factional warfare. And it makes perfectly good sense if you accept the idea that government essentially is limited only by what people, what the majority want. If that's true, then the majority just have to fight it out in elections. They have to fight it out in legislatures. And you naturally are going to get uh, a process of influence peddling over time. I mean, even just giving money to campaigns, even just supporting politicians is going to be seen as an effort to effectively use government to win favors you know, at other people's expense and in, at, and in uh, your favor. So the, 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 um, I think you know, what the LA Times says here is a perfect response to the mainstream view that cronyism is a matter of just favors and, uh, and you know, all businesses participate in it. Uh, and this is the LA Times saying, yeah, you're right, but you know, that's just life. That's what modern government is. We just have to live with it. So what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that it ends up destroying the production of wealth, it ends up damning wealth producers, and it ends up um, essentially bilking money um, from people that, uh, that produce it and giving it to other people. So let's examine that a little bit more. Um, so what's wrong with the conventional view? I mean, there are two things that I would say. One is, the w- is there's a problem with this idea of the welfare of society and the idea of government privileges and favors. And I've already talked about the welfare of society problem. The issue is this ultimately turn, uh, boils down to the idea of sacrificing some people to other people and leads in, inexorably to pressure group warfare. The, the idea of the public good is never interpreted to mean the good of literally 100% of the public. Because if it were, there'd be no need for that concept at all. It always means some people have the power to sacrifice others. And that's Rand's insight. I'm not aware of anybody else who understood that at all, let alone the way that Ayn Rand did. And that, as I said, leads to pressure group warfare 
conflict and influence peddling. It's just a natural and logical outcome of holding that government should, you know, have the power to do whatever is in the public interest. Now, as to government privileges and favors, this is often how the point is put. People are wi winning privileges and favors. And we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean? Here's what it means. So government equals force, right? Government is the institution with a monopoly on, on, on the use of force. So when we talk about privileges, this is a euphemism for some people having the privilege of legally initiating force against others. That's how we should think about this. This is, sorry. Cronyism is legal plunder. It's just as bad as if you allowed the mafia to go around under, I mean, it's, it's, you know, think of the mafia corrupting the police force, right? And paying them off to either do their bidding and engage with them in their criminal activities or look the other way. We should look at cronyism as exactly the same thing. And people don't look at it that way, which is a tremendous injustice. So think about what that does to the wealth producers and what that conveys about them. I mean, there's a double injustice to the wealth producer because on the one hand, he's just getting bilked out of what he's produced. People are stealing from him, right, or her, right? Any business that is really productive when government is using uh, its, its authority to uh, take what is theirs and redistribute it to others, it's stealing. It's stealing the, their product. It's stealing their property. Or it's blocking their ability to, to compete and to produce. I mean, think about Vanderbilt and what the you know, New York legislature did in trying to block him from uh, competing against uh, the, the Fulton steamship monopoly. Or think about what happens to Uber. That's theft. That is a conspiracy. I mean, we should look at that just as, 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 just as horrible as a mafia boss essentially saying, hey, nice business you got there. I'd hate to see something happen to it. And if you, you know, pay me, I'll make sure nothing happens to it. By which I mean, I won't burn your business down. It's the same basic uh, idea. What's doubly bad about it is it's trafficking or happening under the guise of something good, which is government. So there is this moral imprimatur that is given to cronyism. It's as though you took, you know, the Vikings that uh, periodically rape and pillage the town and you essentially said, you guys are now the government, you can operate and do anything you want. There, it's, 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 it's telling criminals or allowing criminals to operate under the legitimate authority of government against, as Ayn Rand put it, legally disarmed victims which is really horrifying and it should be seen as horrifying and it's not seen as horrifying, which is why I really point the, the you know, we really have to take this seriously and look at what a, what a destructive influence this has on the production of wealth. It makes people cynical about businesses. It makes people view business as inherently corrupt. It makes people view government as inherently corrupt. Uh, and if we don't separate these things out and really be willing to talk about what the, what the real evil here is, which is corrupting the purpose of government, then we miss all of that and we end up damning the very people that we rely on to, uh, uh, for our survival. Um, all right, so uh, I wanna say just a couple things then to tie the point up 
about the proper purpose of government because it's not enough. Oftentimes you'll hear those who criticize cronyism saying that, um, that the solution is to shrink the size of government. I would just again refer you back to the example of Cornelius Vanderbilt operating in you know, the pre-Civil War time when the government was vastly smaller than it is today and still facing the same kind of cronyism. Um, which was just as unjust, even if it was on a smaller scale back then, as it is today. So shrinking the, the, the government is not really going to solve the problem. Um, we need to, to do something else. And so we need to think about what the proper purpose of government is. Now, I imagine you've read Ayn Rand on the, on the topic, so I'm not going to um, go into tremendous detail. Let me just put it like this. In order to live as human beings, we need to be free, right? We need to be free to think free to act, and free to pursue our values. The concept that we need to rely on to do the moral, political, and legal work that represents this is individual rights. Rights define the freedom of individuals, their freedom of action, their freedom to produce and live their lives, and they define the scope of government power. You can think of rights as the limiting principle of what government is entitled to do. And I think the best way to put it or think about it is that government exists to protect rights and only to protect rights. Anytime it goes beyond that, because of government is the, the nature of government is force, the only way force can be used legitimately, appropriately, morally, is to protect against the use of force. It's to repel force. It's to retaliate against those who use force. It's to be used against criminals. You can't use force to produce things. Only thinking, only acting, you know, uh, in pursuance of or, or in pursuit of values and happiness can produce what we need. Force can only stop people. It can destroy, it can't create. So you have to ask yourself, who are the appropriate people to stop and destroy? And that's criminals. Now, I mean, there's much more that one can say about that, but I think that's a kind of a shorthand way of, of understanding the proper role of government and just how bad it is for government to use the force it possesses against innocent victims. It destroys the ability of people to live. It destroys the wealth creators and prevents them from doing what we all need to live and thrive as, as you know, free uh, individuals pursuing our happiness. All right, so in conclusion, let me, let me put this a slightly different way. There are two basic ways to live. You can think and produce or you can depend on others who do, right? The better way is to think and produce and be independent, be an independent producer. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody is a wealth creator on the scale of uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, but it does mean that the proper way to think about and, and uh, conduct your life is as an independent thinker, being self-sufficient and self-responsible. And if you're not that, you're essentially dependent on others. And there's all kinds of ways of being dependent on others or living off of others. Criminals are one example, cronies are another. There are other examples, but, uh, but my point here is the wealth creators, obviously, and anybody who wants to live the good life ought to think of themselves, or we should think of them as in the first category. And those who are cronies are in the second category. Um, so the way I would put cronyism is that it's corrupting government so it becomes a predator rather than a protector. And the real victims, as I said, I'll just say one more time, are the wealth creators. So when you think about cronyism, think about the Ubers you know, being driven out of cities 
instead of being able to provide this awesome service to us, they are driven out, they're destroyed. Um, I mean, it's, it's, I find it questionable whether Uber, or Uber will survive over the long haul. Think of companies like Airbnb, think of the entire new economy, or just think of all of the wealth producers from the 19th century who had to fight against this sort of thing uh, in order to produce the modern world that we live in. And when you start thinking about it like that, I hope you will get um, as outraged about it as, as I am and, uh, and start to defend these people um, on, uh, on principle. Uh, cronyism's worst victims are the wealth producers. And if we want to keep wealth producers producing, if we want to make the free country that we, that, we, uh, that we deserve and want, we've really got to be willing to criticize this, not just to poke at it the way I think a lot of free market thinkers do, but criticize it in moral terms. Um, and if you need ammunition for that, obviously consult um, Ayn Rand's writings. And with that, I'll say thank you and we can start the Q&A. So as I said, Greg Salmieri will be coming up and we'll sit down and we'll take questions. Um, I can leave that there. You wanna sit there? All right. All right. Hey, Steve. Peter, go to town. All Ask right, the so first question. I was wondering, um, it seems like it seems like when businessmen, the more successful they become, the, the bigger their companies get, the more apt they are to resort to cronyism to thwart their competitors. And I was wondering, what is the best way to sort of um, counter this desire uh, that they have to turn to cronyism for success? Uh, the simple answer I would put it in, Greg, obviously follow up if you have anything else to say, is uh, the best way to prevent that is that we've got to get government, you know, reoriented to its proper purpose, or at the very least, I mean, I would put it in stages. First, do what I just said, which is, and I mean that seriously, talk about this issue as theft, as, you know, uh, just a horrifying violation of rights, as not something that people should take for granted. But really, the only way you can solve this is, it's not just by shrinking government, but it's by cabining government's power to the protection of rights. Because, I mean, this is when I talked earlier, Ayn Rand wrote extensively on this, the mixed economy ends up corrupting everybody. And if you read, there's a great essay she wrote called The Cold Civil War, um, but I would also recommend The Money-Making Personality. She makes that this point. She makes it in Alice Shrugged in every way possible, and she illustrates it in Alice Shrugged, that as a, com as a country becomes more and more, uh, you know, the, the mixture tilts more and more towards statism, cronyism is inevitable, and there's no way to get along without influencing um, the government, it's, it's the basic way to survive. If you look at statist countries, the only way people can survive is through the black market, through bribing officials. So you can't blame them for doing that. So I'm not convinced. I mean, in, in a sense, I guess I would say that the more that happens, the more businessmen become comfortable with it, the more it becomes just that's how business is done. And so there's no kind of uh, moral black mark on it, but sometimes they have no choice. I mean, again, I would use the example of Uber. Whatever you think of Travis, Travis Kalanick um, uh, or, you know, other things that Uber's done, in essence, what Uber is doing is fighting monopolies. They're an innovative company. They could not function. There is no way they could function if they didn't 
uh, seek to influence government officials in some way, and, and there's much more that one could say about Uber in that respect. But I would, I, you know, in order to really try to solve this, I would not criticize companies for it. I would make sure I always criticized what's wrong with government and, the, and separate the bad actors from the, from the, you know, the offensive use of government power from the sort of defensive use, which is, is understandable. Do you have anything? I'm not sure that it's true that as companies get bigger and yeah. bigger. Is my mic on? Two, yeah, so two okay, thoughts now. on this. I'm not sure that it's true as a rule that as companies get bigger and bigger, they become more likely to turn to cronyism. In some sectors of the economy, the ones that are already cronyish, um, that's you know, certainly the case, and it has to be the case, given there's sure. no other way to function there. But the, I mean, the really telling example is Microsoft, which was a gigantic company yeah. with no lobbying at all, while the computer industry was relatively free, and now they and all and Google and yeah. all the other big companies have huge lobbies because Microsoft was basically destroyed, and had to hobble on lobotomized, um, in the sense that Bill Gates was neutralized and taken out, and their whole creative productive team was diverted. And literally, all the programming teams were diverted to writing manuals for their competitors about how to use the operating system. It was really, if you look into what happened, evil and horrible. Um, but now that that's happened, of course, all the big companies in tech uh, over a certain size have lobbying. And the other thing, I agree with Steve that it, it shouldn't be um, damning individual personalities in most cases, right. particularly of business people. There are egregious actors who you should, um, but I don't think that's the kind of central point. And I think it's also true interestingly, of the politicians and regulators. There are a lot of cases where politicians have a power that there is no honest way oh, yeah. to execute. If you're in charge of zoning laws in certain kinds of things or certain kinds of restrictions or who to give a government boon to, there's not an objective criterion to decide that. So there's no right answer to who it goes to, and yet you have to give it to someone. Uh, and how else do you decide? I mean, there's no, as honest or dispassionate as they try to be about it, there's no objective answer. So that they gave it to this guy versus that mm -hmm. guy, I don't think you can really blame them. What you can blame them and everyone else for is being for this kind of system where that's how things mm -hmm. are distributed. Yeah, the only thing I'd add to that is that uh, what Greg just, the point Greg just made about the the impossibility of using, um, uh, you know, a as Ayn Rand put it, as uh, or to paraphrase her, it was you can't use objectively a power that is inherently objective, non-objective, and unjust. She makes that point in an essay called *The Pull Peddlers*, and it's a really, again, entirely unique. I mean, nobody else makes the point the way she does there. Uh, the the one point uh, I I think what you said about Microsoft is true, but it's even worse than what Greg just said because there's evidence that. Uh, politicians, and you can find this in comments of uh, senators and some of their aides that uh, you know were, were leading the initial investigations of Microsoft. Um, there's a famous quote by one of these guys that basically said to the effect that um, Microsoft and Silicon Valley is ignoring us. They won't ignore us anymore. So they kind of knew what they were doing in, in going after Microsoft. They didn't like the fact that they were being ignored um, and they wanted to assert their power over them. Uh, and then, of course, Microsoft had to do all the things that uh, um, that Greg just mentioned. Yeah. So just to clarify real quick, um, it seems to me like, um, obviously, this isn't the only thing, as you said in your talk, but it seems uh, one way to help the, the problem would be if we reduce government's power to intervene, then that would, in that would reduce the incentive 
for companies to want to lobby and to want to become cronies? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And it's to reframe the issue, not in terms of should this guy get this advantage or this guy get yeah. that advantage? Are you in the side of this? Are you in the side of the fossil fuel industry or the wind industry? It's to reframe the discussion in terms of government shouldn't be on the side of one industry versus another. Government shouldn't be picking winners or losers, as they say, but to make that point deeply and show how it applies to all these issues. I was actually in the room once in a business, a very successful business that didn't need any government help when two top government officials came in and said, we're from the government and we're here to help, yeah. not in those words. And they said, we have a 13-prong plan and you can, three of them apply to you. And these, as if they were wonderful gifts. But my main point, the question that I, or a clarification that I'd like you to speak to yeah. is that when I was very immersed in politics, the term cronyism was not used. It was crony capitalism. Yeah. And I thought that, I fought that battle, and I know John Allison uses the term crony socialism at times. And I wondered if you could give clarity to that so p other people don't make the mistake of calling it crony capitalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, crony capitalism, I should have mentioned that in the list of terms that I'm not a fan of. Um, it's a horrible term. I mean, it's, it's, it is, as John Allison put it, it's much more accurate to say crony socialism, or you could just say socialism or statism. I mean, that's the, that is what happens. That's naturally what happens in a statist regime. The only way you can get by is by pleading for favors from government. Otherwise, you're left basically to stand at bread lines and starve to death. Um, and that's the nature of a, uh, a government that, that increasingly... Um, you know, usurps power and exceeds its uh, its proper um, limits. So yeah, crony capitalism is a horrible term. It's the, maybe one point worth making here is when I talked about the conventional view and where it goes wrong, one of the ways that you can tell it's going wrong is that people want to talk about crony capitalism as though, you know, it's, it's I, I often look at it as well, I don't really side. I mean, there's more to this that goes beyond what I talked about. I think this has to do with how people view capitalism and the influence of altruism and people not really wanting to stand for laissez-faire capitalism. And it's a way for them to say, well, I'm also willing to criticize capitalism because it, it leads to cronyism. So I don't think that's good. Um, and and there's, a, there's a kind of, uh, um, you know, there's a dissonance about their view of capitalism and their reluctance to, to uh, you know, defend it full-throatedly um, and then to do what Greg did to reframe the issue as this is not about um, capitalism it's, uh, and it's not about government, you know, favoring this one after uh, this, this uh, interest over that interest. It's about gov getting government out of our uh, economic lives in exactly the same way that we ought to get it out of our you know, moral life. So what I would add to what Greg's, Greg said is that uh, um, you, you can think of it as um, government should have no more role in the economy than it should have over religion. And we should have a, and Rand talked about this, we should have a complete separation of government and economy for the same reason that we should have of government and religion. Yeah, I think it was the same. I think you spoke to this last year that cro cap crony capitalism uh, is a deliberate term, just like affordable yeah. health care. You know, it's a deliberate term used by the regressives to undermine capitalism because people associate capitalism now with cronyism. 
Yeah, although one point worth, it's not just used by the left. In fact, I think it's probably used as much by the right, and I wouldn't even be surprised, I haven't traced the sort of history of the term, if people on the right or among free thinkers came up with the term crony, crony capitalism, which really tells you something about the state of the defense of, of capitalism. With apologies, because I'm editing and you've already countered what I'm going to say. But uh, your last slide reads, uh, cronyism equals... Uh, Legal plunder? No. No, crony... <laughs> no, I forgot what I was going to say. Do you, do you remember the last slide? Cro cronyism equals... Well, crony... I think I said that cronyism corrupts... Thank you. Uh, I forget what Equals corrupting... Cap, uh, Capitalism, proper but, purpose of government. Yeah, but in fact, that reverses cause and effect. It's not corrupting. It's it's cronyism equals corrupt government. Yeah. So I mean, small point, but uh, it, it, as long as as long as government is there, Uber has to deal with them. Yeah. Microsoft has to deal with them, and you've said this many yeah. times. But I just make a small point. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I think of cronyism as the system. It's the system of government and business being in bed in this way. Whichever side starts it, yeah. you know, and usually it's started by both of them kind yeah. of colluding. And that is a corruption of government. But it can exist, and I'd be interested in what you think about this, Greg, but I think the idea in principle um, that cronyism starts with business, I don't think that makes any sense. Now, again, you'd have to look at this historically and really, but from what I know of the history of, um, of you know, 19th century capitalism, it's, I mean, it is, it's a sort of partnership, but you can't have that unless you have a government that is, whose power is ill-defined and ill-stated. Um, yeah. At least you can, I mean, it can happen in certain ways. Um, so but governments start out with their powers. Yeah. The United States uh, being an exception, a uh, partial exception, governments start out with their powers ill-defined. Mm -hmm. um, right? It starts out with kings and such, and then we get a Magna Carta, yeah. and then we get a constitution. Um, and. Uh, if we're talking about a situation where there wasn't this before, we have an expansion of cronyism into a realm where we didn't have it before, yeah. as opposed to what's normally the case, it's just always been this way and right. people are jostling for favors, there's a question of, of who starts advocating for these yeah. expansions. Right. And that's a historical question we can look at. Um, Rand thought, uh, at least in some places, she wrote that there were business interests who uh -huh. started some of the lobbying for it, but there were also socialist interests. Right. And it's, it's complex. Uh, there are people on all sides who want something for nothing, mm -hmm. who are trying to find a way to get it. And I, w <clears throat> I wanted to draw a distinction between current cronyism <clears throat> and ca cronyism in the 19th century, and I think it's a critical one. And it's one that, uh, to give you an example, uh, in a social environment, socialist environment, which Germany was in. Uh, between the wars and actually before then, uh, you had Hitler taking the initiative and going to various companies and forcing them, basically arm twisting them to do, to do what he wanted. Mm -hmm. um, in the 19th century U.S., you had companies coming to um, states or Congress to arm twist to get allocations of land. Uh, but where the U.S. government had it for, for the railroads and so on. Uh, but it was initiated by 
um, by the company. I think in the you 20th, had it both ways in both countries, well, though. So. It, it, just here, let me, proportionately, though, I think you would find that most of the cronyism that went on in the 19th century was initiated by private enterprise, where I'm seeing proportionately, far greater proportion of the, of the interaction being generated by government. And the reason I make this distinction, it is, I think it's a distinction with a difference. The cronyism that involved capitalists coming to government could be damaging to a certain extent, but it's far more critical when the government is the one taking the initiative. I can, uh, I mean, I've, I worked for, with government for a number of years. I was uh, uh, an attorney working with um, a number of eminent domain situations mm -hmm. and other things, and finding that, that government was fantastic at arm twisting, but they had no concept, first of all, they had no concept of, of what the market could bear, of supply and demand or anything of the sort, so they were doing things like uh, arm twisting banks to make loans to people who could not afford to pay them back, which gave rise eventually to the uh, the housing market uh, so uh, collapse in, in 2008. So, uh, what, but what I'm saying is, it can go even further if government's the aegis of this, as opposed to to a private enterprise being the the generator. If uh -huh. government's the protagonist, I see it as much more dangerous. It can force private yeah. enterprise to do things that are far worse than what we're seeing this, so far. I don't think this distinction is coherent. So once a, a realm of the economy becomes cronyish enough, there's no such thing as it was initiated by government or it was initiated by the company. The government is consists of people who were elected. The people who were elected had campaign donations all throughout. Those all came from the, the, from the companies. They you have to go back 50 years and say who started this law or who started this regulation or look in, in, you can talk about particular episodes with particular new things like TARP, which was initiated by the regulators rather than the banks. But even there, was it or was it initiated by city and a couple of banks that wanted, when the, the relationships are this intertwined, there's no up and down that you can tell anymore. That's the, the problem with a crony type government is that it creates, it turns the government itself into a kind of uh, anarchic realm where different pressure groups are battling each other. And you can't really tell anymore which one. But let's not, well, if well, you're I, gonna say you can see, you'd have to cite hundreds of pages of documents where you can cite the correspondence among lawyers and that's not something we're gonna be able to settle. Well, I, I know you can't do it now. And but, there's but, a line, so let's but I, I say, move on. But I, I have, uh, there are so many government uh, activities that are engaged in now that uh, where, where the government takes the initiative. Sure, but the problem and, and, isn't, and, the, isn't who's taking the initiative. It's the system where well, things are determined this way. I and in that system, it, you can't tell who's taking the initiative. But I think it is to the extent that if it, if it was private enterprise, even if it's cronyism, the person Sure, but we have a line, and I'm going to take yeah. the initiative. I want us to move on to the next question. Okay. Thanks. I have a very quick clarifying comment. Um, I lived in the Atlantic City area during the <laughs> eminent domain um, debate. Mm -hmm. And uh, just to make it clear to the audience that um, Vera Coking's house was never taken by eminent domain. 
In the 70s, Penthouse offered her a million dollars for her home. In 93, Trump offered her over a quarter million dollars for her home. She won in court. It was not taken by eminent domain. Her daughter sold her house in 2014 for over half a million. Good for her. Bravo, I say. So a couple points. I mean, I, I should have uh, probably clarified that. I didn't mean to imply that her house was taken. Uh, Trump and the Atlantic City Redevelopment uh, Corporation, I think it is, tried to take it. But I don't care how much money. I don't care if they offered her a billion dollars a million times over. It's her decision whether she sells the house or not. And I mean, so the way I would put it is, and Trump actually made this argument, well, we offered her a couple million dollars and her house wasn't even worth that much, therefore it was a good deal for her. To hell with that, it's her house. If she owns the house and you sell it and you force her to sell for $2 million when she doesn't want to sell it, that's theft. That is stealing. Why? She doesn't want to sell the goddamn house. It's hers. I mean, that is really, and I, I don't care how much money you offer her, it doesn't matter. It is not up to somebody else to decide what your house and your property and your life is worth. If you get to decide, that's what rights mean. You get to decide this. If, if the government gets to come in and say, your, uh, your house is worth X amount of money and we're going to force you to sell it at that, that is theft. I mean, that is robbing you of the essence of what it means to have property, which is I have control over this thing. I can decide that I want to retire, that I want to hold out for a gazillion dollars. Maybe she said to herself, I'm, I'm glad I own, a pro uh, own property now that uh, you know, Atlantic City has become redeveloped. And I hope Donald Trump comes to me one day and tries to buy my property because I'm going to hold out for $10 billion. And if he doesn't, she doesn't want to sell for $10 billion and anybody makes her sell at one penny below that, that is theft. Period. I mean, I don't care. Anyway, I, I've made the point, but I don't and, know if you want to chime yeah. in. And let me add Trump's Trump is the paradigmatic crony as a businessman. And it's not just the couple of, of eminent domain cases. If yeah. you read a biography of Trump, other than the puff piece biographies that he you know, uh, hired someone to write or ghost, you know, or, or semi-autobiographies with, with someone else making them grammatical, um, <laughs> there's uh, every major step in his career was special favoritism from government. Um, everyone. He's like one of these Ayn Rand, like if you read the story of Wesley Mouch and his rise to power, he was selling a bogus corn cure and then he got a grant to do this from the government with a loan from that. It's, uh, his, it's, it's a shockingly similar biography. It's all sweetheart deals for redevelopment and things where he had political pull because his father was a big democratic donor and he was able to push people up. Now, and I say, you know, it's hard to tell which side the government or the, the the business is at fault, and for some of these things, um, you know, maybe every real estate developer was like this. But he—it was all the most cronyish business enterprises, all the business enterprises that people make fortunes of or amass fortunes from, even in dictatorships, are the ones where he made money. And all of them are corrupt through and through. This is not a paradigm of capitalism. This is a, someone who's like got a kleptocrat kind of career. And you might think, although you'd be wrong that he's one of the better of the people to be in the Oval Office right now. But if you think that because you think he's an honest, straightforward businessman wealth creator, you're not looking at the evidence and you're lying to yourself. Right. 
In view of our culture, our, specifically our political culture, which overwhelmingly favors cronyism and government regulation generally, is there any significance to the victories of the Institute for Justice or any other private advocacy groups you care to name? And can we learn from those victories? Uh, I'd say yes and yes. I mean, I used to work at IJ, so I'm obviously a big fan of the organization, and I was involved in nominally, at least in a number of their eminent domain cases. But yeah, I do think, I mean, I don't think you can litigate, litigate your way to a better tomorrow. Like, I don't think you can sue your way to uh, the proper role of government, and it's, it's a philosophical battle, not a legal battle. But the legal part of it is, uh, I would say, anywhere from necessary to it extraordinarily helpful. I used to think of IJ's purpose and other organizations like it. PLF is another organization where Larry Salzman works. Many of you guys know Larry, another good, and there are other organizations like it. As they're, they're, they're illustrating what is going wrong in moral terms. Um, and IJ actually does this purposely. They, they really focus on the individuals and the harm to the individuals of you know, a government exceeding its powers. And they show us that there can be a better way. They show, I think they give people a kind of hope and a confidence that yes, you can beat City Hall to be cliched about it. I mean, there's many more things that one can say about it, but I, I often looked at IJ's purpose as that much more than really changing uh, precedent for the long term. But but that remains to be seen. The long term, you know, we won't know what happens in the long term until we get there, so it takes a long time. But yeah, I definitely think there's a role for, for them and, and that they do great work. I don't know if you have. Thank you. Thanks. Howdy. Uh, yesterday, Dr. Bernstein was asked if eminent domain laws were used by the great industrialists of the 1800s to seize land away from people for their success. I understand you may have done research on that. I'd like to hear <laughs> what you have to say. Did somebody pay you to ask that question? Um, I made a fortune on it. Got it. Uh, the short answer is yes, but part of the reason that this is a worthwhile question to, uh, to answer and explore um, is that, so uh, the point I want to make on this is that part of the reason that people look at, say, railroad companies, and they're the, the paradig paradigmatic example of this, as sort of robber barons and evil is that and, and we've been talking about this, is that many of them were acting uh, in concert with government and really, they really were uh, acting, uh, you know, with a kind of power and really harming people and taking their property rights. So in, on the issue of, uh, let's think about it as the, the transcontinental railroad, uh, they were the beneficiary, the, 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 the companies that built the transcontinental railroad were very much in, you know, in, in league and in partnership with government. Uh, agents, um, uh, I know the story more from the western side than the eastern side, but but they were granted land and, and they were actually given the power, the railroad companies themselves were handed the power of eminent domain not only to take land for the railroad tracks, but to take land uh, something like several miles on either side of the railroad tracks. So you think if you're a farmer out there where the railroad is, is running through your property, not only are they taking the strip of land and now they're going to have a right without paying you for it, well, with paying you, but nothing like um, what you'd be able to do if you actually sold it to them, um, but, but you know, several miles on either side of the track, and then you have to actually use these government uh, sort of monopolized railways to, to transport your grain. There's good reason for people to think 
um, that uh, that the railroads were were complicit in uh, you know in real injustice, and you can understand that if you're a farmer or a person who lives at that time, you would have a very negative view of the railroad. So, this you know part of my whole point in the talk is we've got to separate and really understand what's going on here and what the culprit is. Otherwise, we end up damning a real good, you know, virtuous wealth producers and treat them like uh, those who, who acted, uh, you know, really immorally. And that's, I think that's the ultimate point. So the short answer is yes, and it's very bad that, that they did that. Just know. as a reference on this, in, in Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, there's an essay by Ayn Rand called uh, Notes on the History of American Enterprise or American Business. I forget the last yeah. word, but it's, um, it's her take, which, you know, to write Atlas Shrugged, she had to research the railroad industry to get a model of for tra transcontinental and the Atlantic Southern. And she uh, presents some of her understanding of the history that came out of that research in that essay. And it's very interesting. Not all the companies were, not all the railroads were built in the same way. Um, there's a kind of complex history there. Yeah, two other really quick points. So I should have mentioned this during my talk. Um, a lot of the information from my talk comes from two books. One, Andy mentioned yesterday, The Myth of the Robber Barons by Burton Folsom, which is a very good short book. Another, I would recommend pretty much all of the writings of a guy named John Steele Gordon. In particular, he's a historian. He's a very good writer, so his books are extremely readable. But in particular, uh, the stuff about Vanderbilt comes from a book called The Scarlet Woman of, of Wall Street, which is about the Erie Railway Wars uh, between Vanderbilt on the one hand and Jim Fisk and Jay Gould on the other. And I mean, it's, it's just an awesome book, an awesome read. If you're interested in this kind of thing, definitely read that book. Oops, thank you very much. It was a very good talk. Um, I was wondering if you could comment on or have any insight, why do CEOs of large corporations in particular seem to embrace cronyism so much? You know, subprime lending, the Paris Climate Accord, you know, all those things. I mean, they have the power to actually do something. Yeah. Um, do you have, you want to start on that one? I well, I, I hate to throw it to you. I can comment on it, but I mean, my guess is it's you a have question that it would be better to ask some of the CEOs. Um, yeah, well, but I'm also, I mean, John Allison versus yeah, John but I mean, someone like John Allison, who's you know met these guys and talked to them about it, and might have more personal insights into their yeah. psychology. Yeah, I'm not thinking we can uh, not psychology as much, but just like what you know. Well, it is motivation partially, but well, you know, one thing is people outside of their own industry right, are guided by their moral principles and general understanding rather than by some insight into the nature of how things work in that industry. So Uran always goes around and talks about when he talks to businessmen, they say, well, we don't need this law in my industry, but of course those other people need to be stranded. <laughs> and I think, you know, CEOs are people and they work the way people work. Um, and then I think there are a lot of cases where people want unearned, uh, unearned advantages. Uh, there might be other causes besides that. And then there are probably cases where people think someone's going to do this. Uh, if I don't, yeah. you know, if I don't do it, someone else will, as Dr. John says. Yeah, oh, I've heard that many times. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it's part of the whole culture that's developed within, like, in our modern mixed economy. And, and it, it's, it takes a special kind of person to push back against that, which is one of the reasons that we ought to value somebody like John Allison, who actually mm -hmm. did that and spoke out against it. I mean, when, you know, not only, so he, uh, he swore off the use of eminent domain during the Kelo case back in the mid-2000s, 
And then later on during the financial crisis, he said he wasn't going to uh, accept TARP funds and was effectively forced to accept them. Um, uh, and you can read about that in his book. Uh, but, you know, to stand up against that in that kind of a culture, it takes a real independent thinking man of integrity. And, and I mean, businessmen are, can be great and businesswomen, uh, human beings, but they're not philosophers. They, you know, even if they've read Atlas Shrugged, it takes a certain kind of person to be willing to stand against the grain like that and, and or stand, you know, to mix metaphors. But, um, and I think we should really value that. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, once you're wrapped up in that, it's enormously difficult to figure out how to get out and how to survive and do business. But it would be a good project to identify more people who have taken the right yeah. stands. Um, and I'm sure there are other ones that we don't know that aren't as high profile and uh, who deserve to be recognized for it. And there would be a lot to learn from finding out who they are and someone writing their stories. Thank you. Thanks. Hello, uh, I've got a very short comment and a very short question. Uh, I come from Poland and uh, the case of Uber versus taxi drivers and the government is very well known uh, in my country, uh, even to the extent that the um, taxi drivers organized maybe not in a formal a labor union, but some kind of unionish organization mm -hmm. are not only uh, asking the government for the intervention against the Uber drivers, they are really themselves organizing and beating the Uber drivers in the middle of the streets, sometimes in Warsaw. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the police very often is looking uh, other way around. Um, but uh, so, so this was my comment that I think the, the, the Uber case is really good case uh, to explain the chronism mm -hmm. uh, issue. Uh, but my question is um, about one of the very common arguments, in my opinion, very bad and evil argument to some extent, uh, that the taxi drivers and the proponents of, uh, um, of those guys are making. Uh, this argument is something like that. Um, okay, uh, we are taxi drivers. We need, uh, before we became taxi drivers, we need to get the license. It costs very much. It gets uh, very much hours of uh, going through uh, some uh, governmental, governmented, regulated uh, tests, and so on and so forth. So, okay, we can have Uber in Poland, but uh, not until we. Uh, but they need to uh, have the, the, those same regulations. So, basically, uh, became taxi drivers. Uh, and uh, until the regulations are are, uh, are just uh, put over, we cannot have Uber, Uber in Poland. And of course, uh, it's not happening very soon. Uh, I don't think the government uh, would uh, remove those uh, licensing issues for the taxi drivers, but uh, the most common argument is, okay, they are um, the unfair competition, uh, the Uber, so uh, Uber should be just removed from Poland. Mm -hmm. uh, to be honest, now there is even a piece of legislature um, voted in the uh, Polish um, parliament uh, about uh, removing Uber from Poland, just like from Hungary. So what would be your answer to that kind of uh, argument? Um, so very quickly, I think we're running out of time, but 
Um, the, unfortunately, there's an argument there. I mean, they have a point, right? So uh, like, take this country, which I'm familiar with. In order to get into the taxi industry, you have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to get your licensing and medallions and such. And there is a real injustice in the fact that, like, I think, and I've actually seen this in practice where, you know, a, a cab company or a driver just got their medallion for half a million dollars, and then, and then the city, several months later, decides to deregulate and they're stuck, like they just spent this money and it's, it's gone. What are they supposed to do and what's supposed to happen to them? So there's a real argument there. It's not, you know, it's not fictitious. Uh, and I, th I don't think we can just toss it off as, well, you know, TS. Um, I would advocate, I mean, you, you got to take a, uh, the approach that we need to lift the regulations from everybody. Um, but I think there's a real argument. Or how do you do that? How do you unwind the system that has cost certain people who, in a sense, innocently just did what they thought they were supposed to do and, and legally went through the process and spent huge amounts of money? I would advocate some side, sort of system by which they are paid back, um, I think. Although, I mean, I'd have to think about that, so I'm a little yeah. bit tentative about that. But, but it's, a, it's a real argument. This is the bottom line, but uh, but I mean the answer is not just to, to to regulate Uber; it's to unwind it. Let me just say one last word on this. It, I agree where there are ways to compensate some to for the government to buy back the license it just sold someone that it should never have done uh, with some you know very recently. I agree those things should be put in, but it's in the nature of business, it's in the nature of life that situations yeah. change and that the complexion of industries change. And when you're getting into a business or choosing a job, part of what it is to be productive is to be looking forward and seeing what things might happen and what things might change. And it's just that the people who created Uber or Facebook or any big, any company that's been very successful reap great rewards for their foresight about what kind of changes were possible and how to make them the case. And it's also just that people who just go by the rules and did what everybody did before and don't think creatively about what the world is going to be like and how they can contribute to it, lose out. And if somebody, um, for, for think it's not the law change, but somebody invented the car, it's, it's not unjust that the horse and buggy guys lost money on the deal. All right, that's all we have Thank time you. for. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.